Hello, friend. It's Carm Capriato with a special recording from Apex 2019. I'm with three important influencers in the industry to talk about consolidation trends. That includes important talk on succession. You don't have to think about an, a specific exit, but think about running your business well so you have options. And that's always the better outcome. Sort of let things just sort of unfold. And that way, when you're ready, um, you can either keep the business, pass it on to the next generation, or if a buyer comes along at the right price, consider selling. Welcome, aftermarketers, to Remarkable Results Radio. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Hello, friend, Carm Capriato, the Automotive Aftermarket Podcast Guy, striving to bring the essential voices of the aftermarket to you free and on demand and available anywhere in the world. I'm the founder and host of Remarkable Results Radio, the Town Hall Academy, and the For the Record Podcasts. Hey, a moment here for Apex. Did you get to Apex 2019? Well, if you did, you saw their commitment to presenting leading-edge technology from suppliers, but also a great job of showcasing the emerging technology of tomorrow. Next year, an entire floor will be dedicated to Repair Shop HQ. You've got plenty of time to plan for 2020. November 3rd through the 5th, 2020, Apex. Now, more than ever. Hey, there's a new page on my website that guides you through signing up for a free subscription for all three podcasts that we produce each week. Go to remarkableresults.biz slash listen on your desktop or smartphone. Hey, I had the honor to moderate a panel at Apex 2019 that looked at consolidation trends, challenges, and opportunities over the next 10 years. Every aftermarket professional who's in it for the long or the short haul must pay attention to the changes brewing when it comes to keeping up with tech, running a strong business, or buying and selling your business. My panel brings a wealth of knowledge to our topic and includes Jason Rainey, the vice president of Napa Auto Care, Greg Bunch, president of multi-shop operation Aspen Auto Clinic, and president of Transformers Institute, and Rick Schwartz, co-founder and CEO of Schwartz Advisors, LLC, a mergers and acquisition advisor and management consulting firm to the automotive industry. Find detailed talking points on the show notes page at remarkableresults.biz slash E514. We were on stage at Apex EDU and covered topics that included a study that said by 2020, 50% of mom and pop shop owners wanted to be out of their business. Well, that's a sobering fact that you could also consider selling to a consolidator. Hmm, but however, don't be worried that you will have to look for or find a venture capital investor. Many shop owners are looking to expand. And if you are selling, how to prepare and understand how buyers value your business. And I got a great panel and we've got an awfully great, great topic uh, to talk about this year since consolidation and succession planning are on everybody's mind and what's the aftermarket going to look like down the road. So we're here to talk about aftermarket 2030, consolidation trends, opportunities and challenges for the independent service professional. Jason Rainey. Jason Rainey is a general manager of Napa Auto Care, a program of more than 17,000 independently owned automotive repair facilities that have chosen to partner with Napa. Next to, uh, next to Jason uh, on his left is Rick Schwartz. Rick is the co-founder and CEO of Schwartz Advisors, LLC, a mergers and acquisitions advisor and management consulting firm to the automotive and heavy-duty transportation industry. Prior to forming Schwartz Advisors, Rick's career included senior executive positions in sales, marketing, and finance. And now, Greg Bunch. Greg is the owner of Aspen Auto Clinic, a five-location automotive and service business in Colorado. Now, Greg started his passion for uh, good cars when he was 15, when he began rebuilding a 66 VW Bug. He moved from a Volkswagen mechanic to an ASE master technician to management to starting his shop 18 years ago in his garage to an award-winning multi-location business. Greg is currently a board member of the STEM-based charter school, AIST, Automotive Institute of Science and Technology. And Greg is also on the leadership committee of Car Care Professional Network, Right here at the Auto Care Association and a certified instructor for the World Pack Training Institute in 
and CTI, Carquest Technical Institute. Greg's unwavering passion for the industry has also led him to form a company called Transformers Institute. It's a coaching and training company dedicated to transforming the automotive aftermarket and to help shop owners grow. Our whole objective here was to bring for you and to our listeners in the future, three distinct points of view on consolidation opportunities and the fact that according to a 2019 bolt-on and P10 survey, where's John, uh, of respondents, they plan to, 30% of the respondents plan to retire in the next five years. Well, just take the number of shops that we have times 30%. That's a whole, whole lot, okay? Now that's, uh, really, that stat opens up a lot of opportunities in all segments of the aftermarket to acquire bays. And acquire bays doesn't necessarily mean big buying little, it means our service professionals just in their own growth mode. And so you may have a succession plan uh, to sell, or you may have an opportunity to buy. And that's what we're here to talk about. So thank you, uh, gentlemen, for being here. Rick Schwartz, I want to give you the first question. Why has there been a lot of consolidation in the repair and service segment? Well, Carm, I, I think <clears throat> there are three themes that um, we've seen on why there's been so much consolidation. First, uh, for investors, uh, they've seen that there's a good return on investment opportunity. A lot of shops are profitable. The second theme that we've seen is a lot of fragmentation. So when buyers, whether it's a, a shop owner looking to buy more shops or an investment company looking to invest in the industry, when they see a lot of different service and repair facilities out there, they look to try and get some um, efficiencies by owning multiple shops. And I think the third, which is more of a general theme, Carm, is there have been so many successful investments in the aftermarket, not just in, in repair and service, but across everything from distribution to uh, manufacturing and uh, all other parts of the industry. So when investors see some companies doing well in the aftermarket, um, they want to find the next investment opportunity. And a lot of them keep coming back to uh, repair and service. Expected trends. What do you see coming up? Uh, is there going to be a whole lot of M&A going on? Uh, well, I don't have a crystal ball, but if I did, I would say the answer is yes. And I think we're going to see a lot well, of... Well, I think because you're close to it. Yeah. We're, and we're, you can't tell us anything. <laughs> we're going to see a lot of M&A for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, first of all, there there's a lot of companies, as I just said, that have done well. So a lot of the investors are saying, where's the next investment opportunity? Second, there's a lot of money available for investors. Um, even though the economy at times can be a little jittery, um, there's still a lot of stability in terms of um, capital available for investors. But you know, Carm, we look at the vehicles in operation, we look at the VIO, you know, we're get, coming close to 280 million cars on the road in the light duty, just the light duty segment. We look at the average age coming very close to 12 years. We look at vehicle miles traveled, all the different factors in play here. Um, those are all very attractive uh, to investors. So we're going to see a lot more M&A in the coming years. A lot of good leading indicators. Uh, where is the uh, the trend? Where has there been a lot of consolidation? Do you see it in collision, tire, repair? So we've seen a lot of M&A in collision. And I think anybody who follows the industry has seen um, what's going on with Caliber, Service King. Uh, recently, there's a big deal done with Joe Hudson's another big uh, regional chain of collision centers. So we'll probably continue to see um, collision centers getting consolidated because the private equity world owns companies, so they're going to want to look for other regional chains or even individual shops to buy. But one of the other dynamics that um, is in favor of M&A in repair and service is the repair and service shop is touching the consumer, the vehicle owner. So whenever there's an opportunity to do um, some kind of mergers and acquisition activity, whether it's a tire dealer or even in quick lube and car wash, there's going to be a lot of different opportunities across the, the spectrum of different kinds of repair and service operations. Great. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Greg? Yes, sir. Why are shop owners desirous to get out and retire? There, there's multiple reasons on there. And there was a study done in 2015 that by 2020, 56% of mom and pop shop current mom and pop shop owners wanted to be out of the business. Um, and that doesn't mean they're just going to close their doors and go, go away. It means they want to pass it on 
they want to sell it. Uh, some of them do have that in mind where they're just going to shut that down. And the reasons are the financial investment that they continue to make less and less money each year. Uh, having employees is harder and harder to find, uh, hire, train and maintain and keep those folks. Uh, technology is passing them up. And so these people that have, you know, when I call a mom and pop shop is three to four employees. They don't have a prime location. They just don't have the financial wherewithal to keep up with what needs to be kept up with in this industry. And they're tired. Uh, they're, they're, they're aging out. Um, they're in that, uh, late fifties, early sixties age bracket. And they just don't have it in them to move over the next five or 10 years to make those changes and adjustments. Um, to to move into the next century. There may not be a great business to buy, but a good location. Uh, yes and no. What I have found, most of these mom and pops, they don't have great locations, and that is absolutely working against them. They're in uh, industrial condominiums. They're on Automotive Row. Uh, they really they haven't built a, a brand, and I think, as, as we'll continue, as, as I'm sure Rick will address more through this conversation, that the big guys, they don't want something on automotive row. They want a standalone building. They want bays facing the main street. They want to know that you're selling a lot of tires. They want a management piece in. Um, and so for somebody that thinks that they're going to get the same multiplier, somebody that has an organization, organization or business like that, um, it's going to be a rude awakening. So the warning to a single shop owner who's about ready to expand is even though it may look attractive and everything, stay away, be careful, uh, forewarned. So if you're a single store owner and your eventual plan is to sell to a consolidator, there are things that need to be thought about. And that is if you're in a, in a bad location, save up your, your money and get to a, get, try and get to a better location. Uh, too many shop owners are like, they're, they're just thankful they got such low rent when really that's not what they need to be looking at. They need to be looking at location, 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 if their plan is to sell off to a consolidator and be looking for opportunities similar to that. And then as we will go further in this conversation, um, a term that I've coined absorption, where some of these mom and pop shops, uh, there's just not enough there to take over as a, as a different location. And we've done this four or five times where we've absorbed their staff, their equipment, their phone number, their database. And so we've just brought them in because we've got big shops and we can handle that. Business goes away and you just uh, consume Right. whatever assets are valuable. Right, right. Okay. And there's a whole marketing strategy that goes into it because, you know, the, the those customers that have been going there for 30 years are going to be nervous and yep. what does this really yep. mean? Yep. And yep. so there's there's a strategy that goes along with that. You know, another thing we've seen, uh, the question, why are shop owners looking to get out? Sometimes when a shop owner owns the real estate for their for their business, they have to make a calculation at some point. And as Greg said, it's getting... Um, more expensive to operate because you have to make the investment. But if there's a situation where you can sell your business, keep the real estate, which is usually separate from the business, but then have a, a good tenant come in and sign a long-term lease, what we've seen is a lot of business owners, shop owners, make that decision to go from being an operator of an ongoing business to being a landlord for the person or the company that buys their business. Yeah. So it, it may be a better uh, financial decision for them over the next five years. Great point. Thanks, Rick. The reason Jason's with us is we don't survive in the automotive aftermarket as service professionals without a great relationship with our suppliers. So I, I think what Jason's going to tell us here today is, I think, really important to listen to. So, Jason, how are distributors looking at consolidation amongst the service professional? Are, are you there to support them? The consolidation piece, it's really ramping up right now, uh, but it's been going on for a long time. Uh, and we've been seeing it on the distribution side, uh, and we've been seeing it on the store side. And so we've been pretty aggressive on the store side. And part of the Napa model is is uh, we work with independents, uh, independent store owners, so we're familiar with it. Um, when you look at where the shop piece of it is, I think what makes this so interesting is is because of what you guys just described, 30% retiring, what's my plan? Um, and I think in some cases, it's a good thing. And so those are the ones that aren't going to make the investments into technology. Uh, we know what's coming around the corner. We know we're going to have dedicated bays to specific repairs only. So there's going to be some big investments for it. 
I think we're right uh, to assist our shop owners in that because we have a history there. We have a brand. Uh, we have a, a network. Uh, we have the tools, and I, I think we're we're excited about it. In a lot of cases, it's a, it's an opportunity for everybody in the aftermarket. You obviously want strong customers. Absolutely, absolutely. And I th- I think five years from now, ten years from now, that's what most of them will be. Rick, uh, who's the uh, who are the buyers in in a lot of these transactions? Well. We, we see all, buyers of all types. We see the private equity firms come in and they're buying some of the larger businesses. I mean, this is way above anybody's think in this room. Am I right? I'm sorry. What? It's, it's, we're, this is way above private equity people. No, not necessarily mm-hmm. because okay. private equity, uh, when they come in and they buy a business and we read a lot about private equity in the press, but they might buy a company, let's say caliber collision. All of us know caliber. So they own caliber, but then there might look to buy another local independent collision center. So the private equity firm may not be, might not be directly buying the next collision center, but the company that they own is buying the business. So private equity is actually fueling a lot of this and it's creating a lot of interesting opportunities. But, you know, Carmen, we also see individual shop owners who are looking to buy someone in the next town over or, or someone else. Um, you know, a good friend of ours, um, he, he owns five shops. He just recently bought a sixth shop and he's just a good operator who's looking for some of those opportunities to add. So it's not just the big financial guys. It could be the local guy, um, you know, someone like Greg buying his next shop. And that's what we're seeing as well. So with you guys, have you seen, is he doing that because he's looking at an end result of selling 15 shops to a big consolidator? Or is he looking for that revenue from those six stores, seven stores? Like, I'm going to make my money now. What's, what's his exit strategy? You know, it, it, that's a good question. He's young enough where he still has a lot of time where he wants to work. So for him, it's more of a opportunistic business decision where he's got some good systems in place. And he said, if I can buy uh, a shop in the next town over, I can take my systems and apply it to that shop. It gives me maybe a little more buying opportunities with my distributors where I'm buying more parts. So maybe I'll get a better price or a better program. And what he said is, I don't know what my exit is. And that's okay not to know, but he said, I want to have options. And that's something we tell all business owners. You don't have to think about an, a specific exit, but think about running your business well. So you have options and that's always the better outcome sort of let things just sort of unfold. And that way, when you're ready, um, you can either keep the business, pass it on to the next generation, or if a buyer comes along at the right price, consider selling. I love what I'm hearing, and I, and I hope my, the audience is hearing the same thing. If you've got a well-running business and you're looking to expand, uh, you're not going to put yourself in a corner with the, the kind of M&A that's being done and, and, and strategies being done. You can have five, six, seven, eight stores. Amass yourself a hell of a business with a great NOI finding someone willing to take you out with a big multiple and make it all worthwhile. I mean, if you, like you said, if you've got 15 years left, go for it because the opportunity is huge. If 30% are going to look to retire, sell, like you say, absorb out assets. Wonderful. Right. And I'd love to have uh, hands raised. Who are multi-shop owners here? Okay. Two. Uh, of of the shop owners that aren't multi-shop, do you have plans for an expansion of this style to your second store, say, on the horizon within the next year or two? So I, I saw one hand, two hands go up. Okay. And the rest of you are bashful. Got it. Okay. <laughs> I understand. Hey, Greg, uh, where do you see the opportunities for independent service professionals who want to grow? I think that's kind of where we've just been hitting. Uh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I think there's going to be more opportunities that we can look at than we'll, we'll be able to handle. Um, I think looking at the, the, the lowest piece would be that absorption where you could um, buy out somebody that's retiring, take on a key employee, take on some equipment, phone number, marketing, that kind of thing. I think there's going to be a lot of that available. Um, all up to what Rick was talking about, a shop that's maybe in a, a competitor or in the next town over. And again, people that want to retire, those opportunities are going to be available. Um, there's kind of a niche market, you know, for opportunities. 
most of your European specialty shops are owned by technicians. And they, you know, maybe they started at a, at a Mercedes-Benz dealer, and so they then they started a Mercedes shop, then they went in, and, and now they're doing European cars. But they're still actively involved technically. They're actively involved in their business. Um, and I, what I haven't seen is any kind of bigger consolidators, and Rick, correct me if I'm wrong, that are really looking at that model because it is uh, that the amount of technical training and equipment to do that model versus a brake and tire shop is is that much greater. And so if somebody's a really, really good European shop owner, operator, um, and if they continue to work on their business acumen, I believe that there's a kind of a niche market to be a multi-store European shop owner. And I think that's a, a an opportunity not a lot of people are looking at. I know I've got a few clients that are, and I really think there's a, a niche available there as well. Hey, Carm here. You know, Apex 19 is in the record books and brought the best and brightest together to create an experience like no other. Now, the big announcement for Apex 2020 is a dedicated section for the service professional. Yay! Apex will present Repair Shop HQ in its own section in 2020. So, if you earn your living in the aftermarket... Apex is for you. Sure, SEMA's fun, but you'll learn more and see more that relates to your sales growth, profits, productivity, and technology at Apex. And training? Apex will present some of the best aftermarket technician trainers as well as management trainers. Now, regarding emerging tech, Apex will feature again in 2020 the latest trends that will have an impact on the service repair professional. And equipment? Wow, see, feel, and touch the latest tools and equipment that will bring efficiencies to your business. Mark your calendar right now for Apex 20, November 3rd through the 5th in Las Vegas. Listen here to learn all about Apex and when you can start registering. We've done podcasts on succession planning and very much uh, unique and separate channels we've gone down in this entire discussion and it's great to have uh the, the panel with this this level of um uh, this this view and, and and specific specialty in the industry distribution m a and shop owner so let's jump a little bit into in into the weeds here greg what are the threats to an independent seller to get a great price when they're considering selling what are the threats great question um themselves ah. uh, too many too many shop so owners. who out there agrees with him <laughs> <laughs> too many shop owners um, are doing the job so if I go to buy a shop and they're the owner is running the shop they're writing the service they're doing most of the work um, they're they're the and I have a, a slide on one of my presentations where the the owner is in the middle of the slide and all the spokes and everything that the business is goes around them. If I take that person out, what happens to the business? I have to have somebody that I can plug into that role um, that can be very successful and is strong and, and has leadership and management or technical skills, whatever that looks like. And that's going to be a challenge for me as the buyer of that shop. Now I'm going to get it for a better deal. If I, it's a, it's a fixer upper, right? It's a car that needs an engine overhaul or a valve job. But if I go in and I just said, Hey, I want to buy something. I'm willing to pay a higher multiplier and it's running well. It's got a manager. The manager knows what's going on. He's seasoned or she, and they want to stay in that business, um, and, and be, become part of something bigger. That's the shop that I'm going to pay more money for because it's worth it. I don't have as much work to do to get that in the fold. Uh, start doing a few tweaks and tune-ups and then move on to the next one. So Aged staff, poor location, all of those are challenges to actually get the kind of money that you would expect. We did a show and, you know, shop owners will look around and take inventory of their equipment and their inventory and say, wow, I have a half a million dollar business and half a million dollars of assets. So I want a million dollars for my business. Yeah, that's, and that's they don't, the joke. It's always a million dollars. It's, it's always a million dollars. And and when uh, a sophisticated buyer, let's put it this way, you don't have to be a sophisticated buyer to go in and have the right guidance to look at the net operating income and realize what you're getting. I mean, you're, you're really paying for cash flow. Well, as, as, a, as a shop owner who's looking to make an acquisition, or even if you're a consolidator, one of these private equity firms, you know, one of the threats that you mentioned or you asked about CARM is if the buyer doesn't know exactly what they want in an acquisition, mm. um, you really have to understand what it is that you're, you're buying, why you're doing it and how you intend for that to help your business. It can look real enticing to buy something because it's maybe a, a 
not, not run that well. And you can say, Hey, I'm a good operator. I can fix that. Or you might look at something and say, you know, it's geographically close by, but then you don't account for the traffic and the time it's going to take to go back and forth. Or even just the, the difficulty in when, when you buy something, what it's going to take to integrate that into your business. So sometimes the best deal is the one that you don't do, but if you're going to do it and it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a service or any industry, you really have to have a very clear idea of and a disciplined approach to what you're doing. So what you're saying is walk away before you get into trouble. If, oh, yeah. Don't fall in love with the deal. You fall in love with the numbers at work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell people if they're, if they, if an opportunity comes before them, let's talk about why we shouldn't do it and let's start over yeah, first. that way. Yeah, at first, first, why not to do it? Yeah. Um, in fact, I was, uh, helped a friend of mine look at a second shop just very recently. And, you know, at first all the numbers look good location. And then you start digging and digging and digging. Um, and you find out there's, there's some issues there and, then the decision has to be made. Like you said, technicians, that's my background. We like to fix stuff up. It, it, this is a more of a fixer upper than what he thought it was going to be for sure. He thought it was going to be a, an easy transition. And so you got to weigh that out. I can do it. I how can much, do it. How much up more on. is it going to cost yeah. in not only dollars, marketing, labor, your time? Uh, what's that worth? And so, you know, I, I'm going to assume talking my connections in the MA world is they're looking for something that's running good. They, they, they're not looking for fixer uppers. They want something that's already up and running profitable. The management team's in place because they're looking at the dollars and cents investment wise. They're not, they're not looking to have to rebuild something. Most buyers are like that. There are some buyers that do specialize in buying businesses that need to be fixed and that's their specialty. Right. But, but they're geared ha- for that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They're geared for that. So you, you really have to think through what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And is, how is it going to help my business? Um, and, uh, you also have to see, you know, what role, if you're a technician who's become a shop owner, do you want to be working on the cars or do you want to be working in the business? So think about how, you know, you want to wake up and spend your working days. I think where, where Greg was a moment ago, spot on, I, I think for us in, in the independent side, uh, especially on the banner part, uh, partnership side is, is getting our owners that want to expand ready to grow. And they have great businesses. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not suffering from the technician shortages as much. Uh, but they're comfortable. They're complacent. And maybe they're doing a little bit uh, too much in the business instead of working on the business. And I think from the distributor side, our, our job is to help with that journey. And maybe that's coaching leading up to it, uh, whatever that looks like, and then really kind of set the table for them. Uh, help them find these shops uh, so that they can just kind of be normalized a little bit uh, in the experience. But I, I do feel like from our side, because one of the things you ask is where can the distributor play a role in this? And I think that that's going to be really the next step, right? I mean, the parts purchases come after it's getting them ready and putting them in a good position, whether that's staffing, uh, finding locations and, and who knows, maybe even helping them resource some, some financial, uh, backing. Do our salespeople that work for our suppliers that come in, are, are they smart enough to know what it takes, the challenges to run the business? And if they are, are they deciding to provide? Well, a I, I bit wouldn't of it? say, if, is it a matter if they're smart enough? Cause I, I really think they are. Yeah. I just don't think they've been taught. And so okay. they're really good at selling parts. And right. that's how we've been for the last hundred years. Uh, what they don't understand is today, uh, if you can sell the knowledge, the programs, that the part sales come after that. You're doing a lot of training to help your, your, your service professionals to stay in business. We are. Um, how are the classes? Well attended? It, it depends on how organized, organized it is up front. Okay. And so, but where we've been, uh, and where we've really gotten the juice behind it, it, they're very successful. Yeah. Good to hear. I have spoke on this at the World Pack Expo. Um, I'll be speaking again at Vision and at the upcoming World Pack Expo, a specific class for people that want to go multi-store. I had three or four people come up to me afterwards that have built a relationship and I'm helping them go multi-store now. And I had three or four people come up to me and said, thank God for your class because I know I'm not ready. And so at least 
because what I don't want to happen, and I'm sure everybody in this room and you guys would agree is, hey, let's help all these people become consolidators. And then they don't have the skills, the infrastructure, the financial capital, all those things that are going to put them at risk. And now instead of having one great shop, uh, they're out of business or they have to, to go out and then they shrink back and the, the reputation that in their community, what that's going to look like. And it just, it's not a good thing. So my hope is to be able to bring education to a point where people can learn how to do it successfully. Um, and, and I'm not the only one out there, I'm sure, that has that ability to help people do that. But it's not something to go out alone. If you've got one good successful shop, that does not mean you can just go out and duplicate that. There's another, other layers of, of knowledge, information, leadership that you need to have in place to make that successful. So you're really trying to help failure rates and all the stress that it takes for growing. I mean, because there's a smart way to grow. Right. Right. And it, it, and going off emotion, falling in love with the shop, you know, Hey, this, my, my neighbor. And I, and I did that. I was presented an opportunity on a Wednesday for a shop that was for sale. And I was, I was running it the following Tuesday. Now I and learned a lot. you regret it today. And that, I, yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't regret it. Right. I learned a lot. I would never recommend a client to do it that way. Right. Um, sure. That was that was trial by fire. But um, opportunities like that are going to come by. And like we said, the more the people are aging out and want to get out of this, the more of those desperation type of opportunities are going to be, avail- be available. And to Rick's point, how do you evaluate that? Is this really going to be fit within my portfolio or not? And not letting emotions get involved, not falling in love with that opportunity or feeling sorry for somebody, but doing a a strategic evaluation and going, okay, is this really the best business decision for me? What a perfect segue into our next question, Rick. Uh, How do buyers value businesses? Obviously, looking at financial performance is the first thing we look at when you're buying a business. And there are some differences if you're buying, you know, a huge chain, uh, you know, multi-million dollar chain versus maybe buying a shop. But the, the basic, uh, um, philosophy is, is the same. You look at things like, uh, profitability, how, how profitable and how sustainable has that profit been? Um, you do hear, or we do hear the term multiple, meaning a multiple of your profit or multiple of your cash flow. Um, so there are some industry standards that are, oh, the standards are change a lot, but you know, there's certain multiples that are standard for what does uh, one type of business sell for versus another. But then there's also some businesses that sell for their asset value. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, how much inventory do you have? How much fixed assets? So um, it, it's basically looking at a couple of things. It's your um, financial performance in terms of profits, your financial performance in terms of the assets on your balance sheet. Um, then the intangible part of valuing a business is what is the strategic value of a business to a buyer? Can they see something that they'd be willing to pay maybe a little extra for because the, the acquired business is bringing something that the, the buyer does not have? Right. So it's, it's, it's definitely, um, a lot of science in terms of the, the looking at performance, but then there's a little bit of, uh, art that goes along with the science. So we were kind of goofing about a one a million dollars. Right. And my business kicks out a hundred thousand dollars a year in that operating income. And I want to earn more. I want to earn a million dollars. It makes a hundred. The reality of you just said, and I, and I think everyone in here needs to understand what a multiplier is. It's really the blue sky, which is what people want over and above because they've run a great business and they've been a great leader and they've, they're not the center of it. And their culture is on top of the world and um, their customer base is unswerving. And I want people to understand. And if you guys want to chime in about that, the, the multiple is the blue sky. So if I want a million dollars for my business and you have a hundred thousand dollar bottom line, that's not big enough or strong enough to get any kind of multiplier to give you your million dollars. You know, you're right, Carmen. I think as a business owner, if you're thinking that there's going to come a time when you want to sell your business, um, some things that we strongly encourage people to think about is how will that business succeed after you? Um, now that assumes that you want to leave the business once it's sold. You may want to stay on, but if I'm a buyer and I'm buying a business, it's, it's very risky. You know, is, is everything going to go away 
Um, now, I may not know what customers are going to drive in on any given day, but I want to know that the techs are there and that they're going to be there. I want to know that people will keep the business running even if the owner's gone. So if you're selling your business, the more you can do to make the business ready to stand on its own without you, the more a buyer might be willing to pay for it. So, Greg, why don't you give us a list of the things that we have to worry about if we're, we want to sell our business? So, great question. Um, and it starts with the people. And I know that there's different arguments whether you should tell your people that you're looking to sell or not. And I could make that argument both ways. Um, but if it's a business that's set up where you have a management team in place, it's profitable. Um, it doesn't mean that their owner's not involved completely. A lot of owners still do the bookkeeping and the marketing and some some side things. But the owner, you need to be out of the day-to-day operations uh, in order to get the most amount of value for it. Um, I'm not a believer you go out and buy all brand new equipment because it's like, you know, do you finish your basement before you sell your house? There's You're probably not going to get everything out of it that you put into it. But you need to have good uh, equipment in there, uh, technicians that, that are willing to stay, that have been there a long time. Uh, customer base, you know, do you have good Google reviews? Are, uh, do you have a good reputation in the community? Are you growing? Are you shrinking? All of those things go into those factors. Um, and then on the flip side of that, as a seller of the business, you know, you're, we were talking about multipliers and, and it, depending on where you are in the country, you know, I've seen from one on a one to maybe four multiplier of EBITDA. So, uh, income before tax the depreciation. Um, and so let's say a, a shop owner has a $250,000 EBITDA. So they make a, make the W2 100,000 and the shop makes another 100,000. And then there's another 50 in, uh, ad backs, meaning, you know, their company truck, their cell phone, their depreciation, that kind of thing. So we're at 250,000 and they want a million dollars for it. Well, you know, shops are not going for much more than a three multiplier. So that's a $750,000 sale price. Now you take the commission. If you're going through a business broker, you take that out of there. You take Uncle Sam out of there. You take a little bit of debt that you got to pay off. Um, so maybe that owner's left with $400,000. And so they thought they're going to get a million dollars, invest it, make 10% and, you know, right off into the sunset. And then they realize I'm only going to, I'm only going to walk away with $450,000 and I'm going to have to go get a job somewhere else. Yeah, my check was for seven fifty. Right. And oops, what happened? Right. So they've got to get those things fixed and grow that shop to a point. If that if that's what they need, if that's what they want to retire with, they're going to have to put probably two, three, five years of hard work into it to build it up to a point where it's really now sellable. And and it's going to be. I know there's going to be a lot out there. But I still think it's going to be a buyer's market because I, I think there's so many people that are going to want to sell that the, the people that are buyers are really going to have a good choice of what they want over the next five or 10 years. So you're almost saying you may have to accept a deal. It may not be exactly what you want. Right. So start running a much better business. I mean, you start paying attention. Right. Uh, and get, then they're going to want to keep their business because they're like, hey, I've never made yeah, this much money in my life. Yeah, that right. happens. Right. Mm-hmm. I turned it around. And so why should I quit? Right. Why should I leave? Why options. should I retire? And that's what Rick said. Yeah. Give yourself more options. There's too many people that have backed themselves into a corner and they literally have no options. Any, any, uh, no, I, I think the other thing that I would add, and you, you touched on it earlier is, is, um, right from the beginning when you talked about telling the people, uh, sometimes the answer to selling your shop is your people. And I think in certain cases that succession planning becomes very important too. And, and maybe that's one way to make them part of that process. And we're seeing some of that in our network right now as well. Excellent. You, uh, just a side note on that. Um, being that we have a parts supplier up on the board here, mm-hmm. um, I think as shop owners need to look at that of who their strategic partner is with their parts purchasing, because if they've, if they're not locked into a relationship, no matter who it is, um, there may be come a day where they really need that help from their, their part supplier. And if there's a strong relationship and a partnership built that, that, that can be a very positive thing that can get somebody over a hump. If they're, you know, if they've got their business spread out with five or six people and lowest bidder, they might not, they may come that when they, when they need support, that may not be available for them. That's a great question, Jason. I'm, I'm a shop owner, uh, dedicated and loyal 
giving you 80% of my business and I see an opportunity to come up. I'm going from single to multi. I've listened to this man over here. He's, yep. he's taught me. I, what kind of tools? And I want to pick up the phone and call you. What, yeah. what, do, you, what do you say to me next? <clears throat> no, it's a, it's a good, good question. And certainly something that we're absolutely faced with. And it, it, it doesn't matter who you which distributor you are. I think there's a couple ways of looking at it. It's, it's what do you have today versus what do you need to be able to provide tomorrow? And certainly with our program, obviously, we, we have our own shop management system. We have our own training. We have our own program. We have our own banner. We have our own brand. But I think, and those are good opportunities to help shops. But I think tomorrow, and I touched on a little earlier, that may include, do we find the location for you? Do we work together to identify where the next opportunity is? Do we look at financing? And is there ways where we can help back that? Uh, again, not saying that, you know, that that can be fully done, but, but I think those are all the things as a parts partner that we need to be looking towards, as well as the coaching, like we talked about. And like what you're doing is, is to make sure that when that single shop owner really wants to go into that next opportunity, are they really truly ready? And so I, I think those are the tools for a distributor that we need to be looking at to be able to kind of bring this thing as buttoned up as we possibly can. Great answer. Thank you. Let me make a comment. Sometimes we're looking for a tech and what do we do? We ask the guy in the tool truck, right? And so if we're looking to grow in a multi-store and I pick up the phone and I call Jason's equivalent out in the field and they go, well, you've only, you've got all these Napa car carriers in the area. Yeah. Do you know anybody who's been whispering about the fact that they might want to get out? Well, well there's no doubt, Carm, that that's that that's the biggest challenge, right? And I, I think for our shop owners in the room, if I asked, could you use a tech right now? Every one of you would raise your hand. Average age of a technician's 55 years and old or older. You got to look in in the schools. You got to look in the trade schools. You got to look in the special markets. But you know what we just did less than a month ago is we launched a full-blown apprenticeship program through the auto care network and basically what that will do is uh, it's structured curriculum it's certified by the department of labor and through a two-year journey uh, you can grow your own and the nice thing about growing your own there's no bad habits they remember exactly who did it Uh, so i think our goal from our member network or their expectations for us is give us the tools and we'll do it and so that's just another way where we need to grow this technician market. We can't just keep talking about how much of a problem it is. So that's just one way where we can help. And, and that goes back to what I said about the relationship with parts vendors that are invested in what we do. Um, you know, Chris Chesney's in the house and uh, he's got career path. He does a lot of technical, you know, through advanced auto parts, car quest, world pack a lot of opportunities um, on that side too. And so it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have Napa and Advanced Whirlpack helping the independent shops. I don't see that coming from the other part suppliers out there. Um, and I think that's part of that strategic partnership when you are looking to grow and expand is what tools are available th- through the people that I buy the parts from. Assumed benefits from growing um, consolidated management. Did oh, we, you just double your money every time. Oh, yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> How do you uh, see it's that? It's more like whack-a-mole. Um, <laughs> no, I see, you know, like software-wise, you know, if you're doing reprogramming and you have that subscription, um, you know, you can have, you know, hey, I'm going to reprogram a Chevy. One of your four shops has that. You can reprogram the BMW of somebody else's, so you can you can share the load if you're if you're going to get into ADOS adjustments. Maybe one of your shops has the ability to to do that. Um, you can move people around. That that's you know, I, hey, I want to send people to training. Well, you need coverage for the shop. You can move people around. There's a lot of economy of scales um, when it comes to you know insurance, workman's comp, um, employee benefits. The bigger your organization is, the 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 better you can spread that load out. And so, you know, somebody that's making a really high profit at a one store, I warn them, hey, it's probably your percentage wise is going to go down a little bit because you need to spread that out um, and you can't be in more more places. But understand that the dollars are going to be greater because you've, um, you know, you make a smaller percentage on a, on a much higher dollar amount. Excellent. Thank you. Single store operators, Greg, uh, they're not going away anytime soon. Um, how are they going to survive? They are going to have to get bigger. Um, we, we call them garage mahals. 
Garage Mahals. Garage I Mahals. love that. That's a great, <laughs> isn't that a great term? Garage Mahals. Um, big. And, and I see, I think the last to be consolidated, like I said earlier, is going to be some of the European specialty shops. But I work with quite a few of them now that are doing two and a half, three, three and a half million dollars out of a single location. I think those guys uh, have a long way to go before they're in jeopardy that they're going to run out of bandwidth. Um, and so, and I see in some areas, you know, I've got a, a guy I know in, in upstate New York that's got a $6 million single location, um, in it, but it's in a small community. There, It doesn't make sense for him to go multi-store. It makes sense for him to have it all under one roof. And I believe I've been in that place. I, I think you probably yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I do think there's a place for that. Not, not every community, not every area is really geared towards having multi-store. I think that some of these um, people that have garage mahals, um, they're doing really, really well because they can overcome their overhead. Uh, they don't have a lot of competitors. And so there, there's a place for both. Absolutely. So if I have a four bay operation, I'm doing a million and a half. I've got a got, four base. You're doing good. Thank you. Yeah. If I, if I have a, <laughs> if I have enough room on my property, I own it. Would one of the biggest options would be to expand it? Every, if I was in the right market? If you're in the right market, every situation is different. And so that's where a looking at all the options is comes. It's There's no cookie cutter answer to that question. Good. Rick, you've seen mergers, acquisitions on a real large scale. Does consolidation only impact big national or regional chains? Or, or are smaller independent shops also impacted by consolidation? I think everybody. <clears throat> the answer, Carmen, is everybody. Um, uh, we the, the big chains are what makes the news when there's an acquisition. But um, as we've been talking about today, um, the the acquisitions could be just a local operator uh, buying or selling another shop. It could be um, someone who owns a shop, whether they own one or they they, they, might, they might own a few shops. They might want to get into a complementary business. So someone who um, runs a couple of uh, car washes might want to get in Quick Lube and create some kind of total car care type of uh, facility. So um, the the Buying and selling of businesses is uh, not limited to the big guys. It could be just for the local um, local shop owner. And I've had some conversations with the biggest of consolidators in our industry, and they actually want the smaller shops to start compiling and get up to five or six shops because if they do want to ever come in and buy you out, they'd rather do six, seven, ten at a time instead of one at a time. So there is... Um, it's not like you're, it's not that they're, that's a positive thing to them that there's smaller level consolidation going on, that they, they see that as a positive and wish more of that would be going on. So that's the story from uh, up top, huh? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great point. So if you're buying businesses, the time it takes and the resources and all the, the, everything that goes into it, it doesn't matter if you're buying 10 or 20 or 50 shops or you're buying one shop. It's yeah. a lot of times the same amount of resources and energy for the buyer. So to Greg's point, uh, a lot of the bigger buyers are saying, hey, let's see some of that M&A on a local uh, level. Let's see you get up to a point where um, we, the bigger consolidator, can now buy that five-store chain because for us, it's the same amount of time as it would yeah. take to buy one shop, yeah. and we need to get a bigger bang for a and buck. And you'd probably recommend that to someone in, <laughs> in what you do. Yes. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Appreciate that. Jason, you said earlier uh, distributors are consolidating. What does that mean to the service professional if we have less places to buy from? It goes back to the point that I that made previously, too. I mean, consolidation has been going on forever in our industry. I think you're, you're going to see more of it at the distributor level as well, whether it's regional or, or even global. I think what's going to happen is you will have less distributors. You'll have less outlets eventually. Um, which I think to the, the other point that we made earlier is where you need strength and partnerships. And you, you really got to make sure that you're in lockstep with your distributor. That's your business partner. That's who, that's who you agreed that you were going to move forward with. But I think you, it's a two way street. The parts purchases will come with the partnership if you really help them grow and make sure that they're in a good spot to where they're using their resources and the tools that are available to them and that you're helping them get to where they're going to be. So when we get to that point where maybe there's not as much opportunity for distribution out there, I think that's where you're going to see strength in partnerships. But you're also going to have more power 
dealers, installers. And so I think that that's, that's going to, over a period of time, kind of take care of itself too. So that, and I don't think it's overnight. I don't think it's, you know, I don't, the point we made earlier too, I, I, we don't have the crystal ball right here, but that's, that's how I kind of see it. Thanks guys. You know, th- think of, thank you for being here. First of all, one heck of a turnout. And, you know, it was great to see uh, Apex announce uh, repair shop headquarters uh, and a real strong commitment to the service professional for next year. And I think about, you know, why are you here? Well, you're here to learn. You're here to network. Uh, many of you belong to 20 groups and networking groups back at home. And, you know, we kind of know, Greg, that business is a team sport and you really can't do it alone. You can't do it in a vacuum. Uh, fear makes you stupid. Remember that. I recently yeah, they, said that. The, the joke is they're independent repair shops because they're owned by a bunch of independent people. That's right. And so not, I don't think anybody wants to take away the independence. People have very successful businesses because of that independent spirit. It's what, you know, founded, founded the United States. So I don't want anybody to, to think they need to lose that. But there is strength in numbers. And whether that's a strategic uh, relationship with your parts vendor, whether that's involved in a 20 group, a mastermind, uh, whether industry or out of industry, I've learned a lot of my business acumen, uh, not only from being involved in industry events, but going outside of the industry, being involved in masterminds and, and different programs and CEO groups that are, that are, uh, different verticals and learning from them what made them successful, what things, uh, brought them to the next level. And, you know, we we're, talking about mergers and acquisitions. I I know a gentleman that was in the dog toy business and he had a a private equity firm come in and he was doing 10 million in revenue and they bought him out up to, uh, they bought 70% of his business, left him 30%, made him the CEO. And now they're, they're going to be eclipsing a hundred million dollars and looking to do another flip. If I hadn't been exposed to those kind of things, I never even would have heard that that kind of thing goes on in that world. And, and I know that's going to be happening in our world too. So knowing about those things, I think is very important. And there's, um, most, what is it? 93% of shops are owned by technicians that went out on their own and started, started their business. So, um, you know, thinking that if you just fix the car ride and take great care of the customer, that's the foundation of having a good shop, but they need to expand what else is out there in the whole business world and understanding finance and understanding M&A, understanding real estate, all of those kind of things. We, we need to be experts in those if we're going to grow our businesses. And that doesn't happen without getting some help. You know, as the CEO of Transformers Institute, and I think you started to, to support multi-shop owners, didn't you? Right. That was the original. What's the pulse of your clients? What's going on with them? It's exciting as heck. I, I got to pinch myself every time. We have quarterly meetings, um, and we talk about what's going on. And in the 15 shops that are in my group, I think we've added 17 locations in the last couple of years, through most of them through acquisitions. And so they're getting very, very excited. Um, and we cry on each other's shoulders, you know, that, hey, we, we just bought the shop. We had five great employees and the manager got mad and left because he didn't get sold the shop. So now I'm scrambling to find somebody. All those fun things go on. But I would say um, these guys are very excited about the industry, where things are going, being able to continue to expand their business. And I hear a lot, and this is really cool, and I think you would you'd get the same vibe the more people you interviewed here at Apex. Um, it's not all about the money to them. It's providing opportunities for their current employees to be able to move up in their careers, um, be able to make six-figure incomes, be able to provide better for their family. And if they're just in one small little shop, they can't do that. They know that if it, the bigger they get, the more opportunities they can provide for their people. And that's, that's really cool to see that it's not just, I mean, of course they want to make more money, but it's, there's a lot more to it than that. This event had an awful lot uh, going on about emerging technology, ADAS. I was really impressed with the emerging technology booth that, uh, that Apex created. And they're, they're, they're busting their hump being involved in having seats at the table of all this. And so with that said, said well, where am I going? How am I getting there? What kind of equipment or investments do I need to have? So, Greg, back to you again. From your perspective, what type of investment is going to be necessary to continue to run a viable business? Mm. A lot. <laughs> okay, next question. Um, <laughs> Can you so help me round that what, down? What's fun to watch, you know, when I started in this business, you know, at a dealership, we were at first couple little independent shops, and then even the first dealership I worked at, it was handwritten tickets. 
and manually adding up parts and labor and all that. And then uh, the one of the first shops I worked at where I was a, a service advisor, we were we were DOS we, and we had that, you know, the first service writing program and we thought we were the cat's meow. Mm. And to see green we, screen. Yeah, green screen. <laughs> so to see where technology is going just in the service advising um, and shop management tools that are that are continuing to develop and there's some really awesome up and comers um, in the in the software side of things. And I've seen some of the, the behind the scenes with some of the software that's coming up that's going to make that estimating process that much easier. Um, obviously, uh, digital vehicle inspections, getting those pictures out to the customers. Um, I think being willing to invest in good software to run your company is going to be important because it's, it's all going to be about bay efficiency, technician efficiency. That's definitely moving forward. Having scan tools, obviously the uh, manufacturers have made their products more available, more price competitive, where you can download the software onto laptops, be able to do programming, that kind of thing. Um, so definitely being able to have the technology to diagnose and fix the cars. Uh, we're looking at next year really doing a heavy investment into ADOS and we have the space and be able to, and I think that's a little bit of an unknown. I'm not saying everybody's got to go run out and do that. Hunter, you know, they're, they're always looking at how to, and I'm sure there's other companies, but that's who we use as far as, you know, making an alignment effective, but be able to do it in a very quick manner. All those things are going to be important investments. People that, you know, at my shop, you can get a alignment done in 20, 25 minutes because of the equipment that we have when you old use older machines, maybe that takes an hour. You, you add that up over a year. That's a lot of revenue lost because you're, you don't have the equipment to be as productive as you need to be. You know, Carm, I think uh, two other things I would add to that. Um, it goes without saying recruiting. And we talked about that earlier, but as a shop owner, you have to be thinking about where you're going to recruit new techs and also the retention part. Um, the training is a big part of that. So I think the people element of your business is critical. And it's something that as a shop owner, business owner, you need to be thinking about investing in, but and also maybe throw out one other thing that you need to think about in terms of the investment. And that's the experience for the consumer when they come into your facility. Um, you really need to be thinking about who we're competing against. Um, and it's not just the other shops. So what's it like when you go into a Starbucks? You know, it's, it's very predictable. It's kind of home, homey. It's cozy. So, you know, some places are putting in Wi-Fi. They're putting in, you know, a, a, a cured coffee maker. You have to decide what's right for you. And you have to think about who your clientele is and what they're expecting. But if they're going into certain other retail establishments and they're getting a certain kind of uh, service, and that could also be a dealer, because I think we've all seen what a lot of dealerships have done with their uh, their customer lounges, you need to think about just making sure that your your um, your facility is... Uh, something that a customer is going to feel comfortable driving up to. Yeah. You know, you can't open a coffee shop today unless you have Wi-Fi. Ten years ago, that didn't matter, right? And I don't think you can open up a service. Prefer Actually, I don't think if your lobby doesn't isn't up a couple of notches and you don't have Wi-Fi and a place to charge a smartphone in a Keurig, start to your Monday. Point, go back to your place and start and fix it. To your point, though, Cartman, and glad you brought it up. I mean, that's where the consumer experience starts. And it starts at the curb and, and, you know, what kind of presence your business makes. Uh, and then once you walk through the door and, you know, I'm uh, sorry, the gumball machines and the peanut machines, that's not today. What? And uh, I love M&M. Those M&M &M machines are office, they're my favorite. And they've usually been there for a couple of years. Uh, but I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, you think about when that vehicle's under warranty and these dealerships today, they're, they're Taj Mahal's. And then it's kind of a mixed bag when you enter into the, the aftermarket. And so when you're setting shops up and you're trying to grow that network of, uh, you know, really loyal customers, that's where it starts. Yeah, we, we help our clients um, figure out what their avatar is. Who is their perfect customer? What do they look like? And does your shop match that? You know, and, and a lot of car guys they got car posters and nascar right. and everything in there well if your avatar is a a soccer mom she doesn't care about nascar she you know what's what's going to feel comfortable and what amenities need to be need to be geared around absolutely that's if that's your avatar what that looks like um and so that's that's a great point and yeah. it's not technology based but it's you know 
if you're not a decorator, maybe hire somebody and say, look, this is the person I want to attract. Hire somebody that knows how to, how to decorate. Coaching. In order to, yeah. to make that. It's amenities and environment, and we right. can't discount that. And, right. and, and, you know, on the marketing side, you got to think about how people are shopping today. Um, you got to have a website, and, and it almost goes without saying, and sometimes when I say that to people, they think, well, that's, that's 10 years ago news, but you got to have a website that um, just has a good experience. It works. It's something I can look on my tablet, on my, my, um, my cell phone. It's simple things like that. And they're so easy to get a, you know, a simple but effective website. You know, have good Yelp ratings, whatever you do. People always are using things like Yelp, yeah. Groupon. So, you know, just kind of think outside the box a little bit about how are you shopping for things when you're shopping that's how people are looking for a place to get their car fixed. A great point, Rick. I was honored this year to be a judge for ASA's uh, top websites of the year. And boy, did I see a bunch of beautiful, beautiful websites. I mean, there's all kinds of, I don't want to say the word investment, but really smart to think going into what that first page looks like and, and call to actions. And, you know, they say it's all about above the first fold. Mm-hmm. And as someone I interviewed this week said on the mobile device, it's above the first scroll. <laughs> And uh, so, so keep, keep, please keep that in mind that, you, that your websites are mobile friendly. Jason, I mean, 17,000 auto care centers. I mean, you're really in touch with the pulse of the industry. You hear anything about business model transformations, people looking at ADAS? Where, where are the, independ- the oper- op- opportunities for independence coming? We're still kind of transitioning a little bit. Um, it's kind of interesting. I kind of had rose-colored glasses on, and I thought more of what I would define as a engaged, powered member, I thought that they were a little more connected to it uh, than what they are. Uh, but I think a lot of it is just because they're not actively seeing it. But the resources are there, the training's there, the tools are there. So the education piece is certainly taken care of. Uh, but I do think that that is something that we're going to really have to get serious about, just like what they're doing out here this week. But that's never going to change. That's what it is today. There's going to be something tomorrow. Hybrid's been big over here this this week. Uh, and so that that's one of the things that, that I think we have to just kind of tap the brakes on, pun intended, I guess. This is always going to change. It always has. Now, we're seeing change come at us at a pace that we've never seen before. But I think in a lot of ways, that's okay. We just got to really embrace and, and get on with it. So... But it's all good. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time.